Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Caw, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your co-host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my quartet, the man who single-handedly brought the parlance bean-flicking back into the zeitgeist, the one and only DJ. I mean, I, I don't know if I want credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been cool. People in the Facebook have been enjoying <laughs> the return of the phrase. But I don't I don't know what generation or, like, where that terminology actually originated. Like, is that from a movie or something? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it feels like a 90s kid thing to me, but I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows what they're doing You're on their walk, TikToks watching these the days. wild uh, thornberries and like they're like, "Hey, are you gonna go flick the bean?" <laughs> Is that what cool beans actually means? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. So aside from bean explosions and bean flickings, uh, plan for this episode is that we're gonna kick the show off with an in-depth conversation about Wizard and Glass Part Three. Come Reap Chapter 3, Playing Castles, and then we'll close out the show with some great listener feedback, a question from the Facebook, and we're going to touch on the um, Episode 3 of the Stand series. And and yeah, that's a, it's a full show, folks. It's a full show this week. So before we get into all of that, DJ, can you please remind our listeners of what our spoiler policy is? We will stuff you up like a stuffy guy and throw you on the fire before we would ever expose you to the spoiler zone. And we don't want to hear you squeal like a pig, especially if you have light blue eyes. That's very, uh, yeah, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. All right. Uh, no iTunes reviews this week, but if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on, uh, I guess it's called Apple Podcasts now, and we will read it on the show. What, they changed the name? Yeah, I, I didn't know that either. All right, so where did we last leave off, Deej? Uh, so we we had some, like, uh, uh, kind of shady business with the snake and, uh. <laughs> you know, uh, that sort of thing. And um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And uh, now we are on to uh, yet another uh, <laughs> aptly named uh, section, uh, uh, playing castles. And we do actually get some castle playing here. Uh, less metaphorical and actually well, playing the game against each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like one person's playing castles and the other one's just humping away. Well, I don't, I don't know now. I, um, this chapter exposes a couple extra layers to the whole game. So I'm, yeah, I'm kind of interested to get your take on that. But okay. before we dive into that, uh, we kind of start off with just, uh, some more world building and season changing, um, before we were painted this sort of like nice picture of the harvest season and, and farming and all that business. But now uh, the weather's starting to get poor. It's not flooding, but it's definitely not as good as it was. Uh, there is, uh, people getting hurt on the farm and they're rushing to dig stuff out of the mud and work on tractors and well, work on horses and, uh, ladies are hurting themselves, picking plants. Mm -hmm. And it sort of just paints this like deteriorating image of what was before this sort of um uh, picturesque area yeah and, yeah. and so it, it makes you feel like the storm is moving in basically and things are going sideways right and then i love how it kind of ends with the i, mean, I guess this next section starts with basically that the weather abruptly changes and the sun comes out and everybody's back to to getting ready for a reap and you really do kind of get a sense that this is this calm before the storm right <laughs> like we're in the eye of the storm at this point and 
it, it's also just a very ominous way to start off this chapter. You know, and like you said, the last couple of chapters, we've had this very idyllic description of this beautiful late summer and fall in this rural pastoral kind of town. And now all of a sudden it's stormy weather and, and people breaking bones and breaking their back and, and just wanting to crawl into bed and not come out. It just, it feels like a very thematically since weather and sort of, astrological things have really played into the themes of the of the book i kind of feel like this is really trying to communicate a, communicate a sea change in the book well there's even a point too where um they're talking about the decorations that they'd already put up mm-hmm. and the decorations are saturated and basically destroyed by this change of weather yeah and the only thing the folks of the town can do is wait until the weather subsides and then rip down all the directions and or decorations and start over again. Yeah. And like, that's like a, that's a dark moment. And yeah. it also like spells out sort of what we start to find out about the town through this chapter. Y- yeah. It, this really does sort of um, unveil <laughs> really kind of the undercurrent of, of Hambry, which has been this, like I said, very idyllic kind of, set up up until this point we basically have these like ominous tones of weather and change and then as you said the eye of the storm where things just sort of like lift up and we cut to jonas (laughs) yeah uh, wandering down the street and aunt cordelia um runs a a a rye with him and and finds him and he starts out like you kind of get some internal dialogue from him of him like looking for a younger lady to settle down with and instead he he like he sees the uh um least later the last lady he was expecting to see and she runs up and wants to immediately confide in him and he sort of already knows and gets the feeling that she has lustful feelings for him Uh and this this sort of like becomes this thing where she's easily taken by a small amount of what would otherwise be normal chatter but it becomes flirtatious to her yeah to the point where she's ready to confide in him and tell him everything and he was gonna go get a drink but now instead uh because cordelia is more of a teetotaling type of lady takes her over and sits her down not too far from where roland and the missus were exchanging notes in the brick which is an interesting side note. Yes. And she begins yeah, that's to, true. She begins to lay out um, her fears uh, for what, uh, what's been going on with uh, Mr. Dearborn uh-huh. and her niece. And so th- those fears uh, sort of light a fire in Jonas's mind, and not because he cares that, that she's sleeping with Roland, that's not really a huge issue. It's actually more the fact that <laughs> um, he's basically been hiding this relationship. And Jonas kind of thought he already knew everything that was sort of going right, on. Right, right. And the fact that Roland was able to have um, a relationship with Susan uh, during this time means that uh, – Jonas has basically missed some stuff that's going on. And if he mm-hmm. missed that, what else did he miss? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's a, a little detail we passed over right at the front of this section, which is that Roland and the gang are kind of finally getting back into a 
better place. Like they're out riding uh, around on the drop, counting things. And it, it's a nice little setup for what follows here is, you know, that even though they're in a better place, the problem is that they're not really progressing. They're still just kind of staying in place, not noticing, sticking to their plan that it's now like five steps behind everybody else. And they're totally blind to what's going on right here. And so on one hand, from their perspective, things are probably getting better. But we, because we're seeing additional perspectives, can see that actually they're totally oblivious of what's going on. I mean, starting. I, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I guess I could have spent more time on the, on the lovemaking and calling of Roland's name multiple nah. times. <laughs> No, nah, no, nah, I think we, we got that. We got <laughs> You're good. What's also interesting is this is the first time that we see, we've seen Cordelia and Jonas interact before, but this is the first time we're seeing it from his perspective. And bro, it is brutal. Not only is she not attractive to him, but he actually kind of has disdain for her. He presents in a way that makes you think that maybe there's some kind of fondness, even if there's not an attraction there. But now when we see the internal side of this you see he really is just that good of a manipulator that he can present in a way that makes you believe that there's actual like actually a fondness there like as a reader only seeing it from an outside perspective i kind of thought like yes he went into this with an intention of using her for information but it seems like they've actually struck up kind of a friendship Oh, no, 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 no. You would almost feel bad for Cordelia if she wasn't such a greedy asshole and if we didn't know so much about her. Well, there's a great line when she's um she's basically uh, fearful of being sent west. Yeah. And she looks up and around to make sure no one hears her or sees her uh, tears. And, and Jonas describes her as like he's seen that look from coyotes and other wild animal yeah. looking up from their meal out in the wild. Yeah. And like <laughs> that description basically paints her as like this vulture who is hanging over this young girl and is fearful that someone might come steal her meal away from her. Yeah. Yeah. It's not – it's – it's br- – like I said, it is brutal. And I think up until this point – We've gotten little glimpses of Jonas's internal dialogue, but a lot of it has been directed towards the idiots around him. And I think this is the first section where we kind of are getting a, a much, but he's always kind of like a, a, almost like a Hannibal Lecter type character where he's like very thoughtful and methodical and a quiet villain. And now we're kind of seeing an uglier, nastier side of him, which is, it's just interesting. I mean, I, I don't, I, it doesn't make me like him less as a villain. It's just, I think there's a lot of, he's slowly being revealed to us as a character in a way that I find very compelling. Well, it kind of jumps around a little bit, but as part of that reveal, he actually like kind of shares with the reader what he thinks about all of the other characters in his group, Uh which is interesting and like changes the perspective quite a bit because for him, it sort of feels like it's a job that he plans to win unless it goes sideways and then he'll just as happily abandon these folks for something else. Right. And what's weird is that moment almost makes you feel bad for him a little bit. Like you realize that he's just surrounded by idiots, you yeah. know? <laughs> like even his description of the other two are like, they're quick hands, but you know, doll witted. Yeah. <laughs> himself out of a paper bag. And it's like, man, just tell us how you really feel. Yeah. And, and so th- I thought that was pretty good. Um, do you mind if I skip a little bit ahead of Rhea for a second and just talk about Jonas a little more? 
Yeah. Yeah. So like that moment when he's walking Cordelia back to the the yeah. house. Mm-hmm. I, I know they're not in the same section, but if yeah, know, it kind of flows well. Totally. Do it. And, and so what I'd like to just say is like his disdain follows him all the way through to the point where he is walking Cordelia home. And he has managed to convince her that her uh, niece is actually smarter than uh, Cordelia gives her credit for in the fact that she knows what would taunt and most – uh, hurt her aunt and make her fearful and it is to deny her the uh, swearing that she is still been celibate and not been tainted by uh, Mr. Dearborn right and that like the aunt's own malice at her niece paints her own vision of what her niece would want to do back to her yeah which like makes her believe this uh, obvious farce yeah, I also think there's a little element of this where Jonas kind of, he doesn't believe it, but he wants to believe that's true. Because if that's true, then he has not had the wool pulled over his eyes by old Roland. It's pretty interesting. And I'll, I'll stop there for that section and, mm-hmm. and just jump back to uh, Rhea. But yeah. uh, basically that that uh, um, tea drinking was very revealing. And now yes. he has questions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really crazy how quickly things crumbled. You know, like you said, this was right by the place where they were going to put notes and, and Roland was like, no, I have a bad feeling about this. Let's yeah. don't let's not put this here. They're so cautious. But all it took, all it took was one slightly suspicious wave being seen by the wrong person. And now everything is falling apart. Not just the Susan stuff, but everything down the road. It's just like the dominoes are follow- following. Yeah. So we cut to Rhea, uh, who's back in her... Um... Her little shack. With love her, shack. With, yeah, love shack. <laughs> I mean, I mean now we know. There's we know more, things. Uh, <laughs> more bestiality coming up here. So, I guess uh, it's more of a love barn. <laughs> so, we, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, all right. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, man. Uh, so there, there's a – actually, never mind. I'll save grandma's tongue for um, – <laughs> down. <laughs> Down down the road, that'll be on one of the extra casts if you guys want to hear about the grandma's Grandma. Tongue. Oh no, you're not talking about Rhea's tongue. There's a grandma's tongue. Yeah, there's a there's a um, there's a move. It's called the grandma's tongue. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll save that for um, one of the the post shows. Shame you couldn't remember that on our love podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's not really a move you'd use for. For um, imbibing tongue. love, <laughs> but Whoa. I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, back to Rhea. So she's like been basically staring over this like this ball, watching like all the menace in society. You've got people killing their friends over petty things. You've got people being mean to each other. You've got kids bullying each other. You've got people being unfaithful. People beating up on their on their family members. It's just like across the gamut, like even to where she paints this picture of a guy, like killing his friend over something trivial and then leave him in a ditch and putting some hay over him and his body's still there rotten and may continue to rot until next year when the new season starts. Yeah. And Rhea, like she's basically loving this. Yeah. And the way she describes it is that the ball isn't interested in any act of human kindness. It's only interested in, 
in these dark sides. Now, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because we've learned a little bit more about this orb. Yeah. Uh, do you think that the orb is doing her bidding in that she wants to see those things, so it's showing it to her? Or do you think, like, it is just piling on evil because that's what it is? I think that this ball shows the person that's looking into it the thing that is most likely to make it continue to look into it so that it can continue to, to feed, feed off, off you. So not only do we see kind of what the ball is capable of here, but we also see, I think it gives us a lot of insight as if we actually needed it um, into exactly what kind of, just how to the core rotten Rhea is that the thing that most transfixes her is that is people at their worst and most vilest and so I think we learned that we also kind of like we were talking about how this this section or this chapter really peels back you know this veneer of of a beautiful pastoral town and you see the ugly underbelly this is what we're kind of witness to we get a hint of you know she sees things like animal torture and murder and incest and like everything you can imagine is happening in this town and i don't know if that is just everywhere all the time and a commentary on humankind or if it is <laughs> evidence of a world moving on whatever the case may be this beautiful town is not what you think it is so what made stood out to me though is the other thing that this ball has shown her is Roland and Susan, and they are outliers because they are not doing something despicable. So what does that mean? I mean, why would be the, what would be the purpose of showing them to Rhea? It doesn't really make sense. So that tells me one of two things, either, I mean, either that's caw mm -hmm. and, or maybe it is that there is some kind of agenda. That, that um, intermixed with all of this really disgusting, like, worst part of the internet content that she's getting, she also gets this, you know, interaction between these two young lovers, like this very pure, loving, first love kind of thing. So, I don't know. What do you think? So it doesn't make my, sense to me. My theory on this is actually that um, while the ball shows, shows her what she wants to see, the ball isn't necessarily um, set to simply show her evil. So... In this case, like she wants to enact punishment upon, uh, you know, Susan, right, and to a lesser extent, Roland, yeah. And there's a flash. One of the flashes is actually uh, Cordelia uh, talking to Jonas, mm. and she kind of goes on a rant about how how much she hates and loathes Cordelia, and like mm. even somewhat despises Jonas in a, a he's a failed gunslinger who's you know right uh, thrown out and so on and like kind of doesn't think highly of him and, and so those two things combined and then seeing roland sort of to me was the ball helping her to culminate what she could solidify to do to susan and roland so you think it's to... another like a reflection of her subconscious yep exactly okay and, that makes and, sense because at first i was on the on the spiteful path and was like no this ball just wants to show you evil but when i started thinking about it i'm like well okay if it only showed you evil your point is is very valid but also like what evil is in cordelia and jonas having a conversation yeah yeah i think you're totally right like it's it, and so it's maybe furthering her mission or goals. 
I feel like that's kind of a trope too in fantasy, right? Like something can see into your subconscious and like reflect it that way. Yeah, and even like so this this pink orb is like kept her locked in for quite some time. But mm-hmm. it even like allows her to release from it to put her plan into motion. Uh she goes over and licks the cat's salty skin, uh. kisses it, <laughs> and the cat is like Boy, sure is good to be a muty cat these days. Oh my god. As an avowed cat lady, I have never licked my cats. Do not lick your cats, please. Don't know what's on them. That's how you get some kind of thing on your tongue that swells it up. Right? Ugh, yeah. The other quick detail in here that you kind of touched on was that thing about where she talks about Jonas, and Mm -hmm. she refers to him as a back shooter and a a failed gunslinger. Now that sounds specific to me do you think she's just talking about his character because i get the sense that maybe she knows some things about jonas what do you think uh so she's already kind of had interactions with jonas Mm -hmm. and kind of had a sort of like when we first get the ball delivered to her right we sort of get this like they've already interacted with each other before was it him that suggested that the ball stay with her that's what I was thinking. Oh, okay. Okay. That's like chapter one stuff. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and later on in this chapter, it's revealed that by mentioning Rhea it is a reminder to Jonas that mm-hmm. he needs to go back and check on said ball and he'd almost forgotten about her. Everybody's getting in their own way this this chapter. She wants everyone to forget she has the ball, but there she is sending her cat. I mean, again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but if she hadn't sent her cat, he had completely forgotten about her. Yep. Exactly. So it's just kind of a pattern that sort of unfolds in this section where everybody's kind of, like I said, getting in their own way. <laughs> <laughs> so basically she comes up with a plan. She puts a note on her cat, uh, licks her cat a bit to motivate it and then sends it off into the world to go run this errand which we will find out later is basically to go pick up some graph and that scene of her just licking the cat and the cat being like yeah it's like how often do you lick this cat and it's the same thing with that snake thing before before it's like mm. you know, you're too familiar with your familiars ma'am that's not what that yeah, means exactly and the other thing is, and I want to underline it again, is the ball released her to do this. And, like, she almost had lost her interest in in, in activating her plan until the ball, yeah. like, kicked her out and said, okay, go for it. And she's like, oh, yeah, it's so simple, so easy. Uh, mm-hmm. I can just do this. And, mm-hmm. and we don't find out what it is yet, but it's, it's, it's there. It's a, a note that is waiting to be sung. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I want to circle back for a second, though. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to mention with the uh, Jonas and Cordelia's earlier conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the fact that when she first mentions um, Reap Night, uh, Cordelia, like, has sort of, like, uh, enthronged view of the stuffy guys and them burning. Yeah. And, and, and likes it. Yeah. And Jonas is like basically alludes to a possible plot to throw all three boys into the fire dressed as stuffy guys. Yeah. I, this book is very good about only giving us little hints and peaks of what everybody's actually thinking about and planning. And it always feels like such a treasure hunt. So that when you find out something, you're like, Oh, but one of the things that we find out is part of his plan apparently is to burn them alive. Yes. So that's bad times, bad times for the gang. 
it's weird because that's what we hear at the beginning. But as Jonas learns more, it feels like his plan starts to shift in another direction. Well, I think there's a sense of urgency as this goes on. Whereas before, like he felt very much like the the puppet master pulling all the strings over these dumb kids who are no no match for them. Sure, maybe they can shoot, but whatever. They're no match for his you know his master chess playing or i guess castles playing. Castle playing and then all of a sudden he's like oh shit oh four or five alarm fire oh shit these guys are really smart so i think he is having to adapt to new information which is not how roland is responding to new information which i don't <laughs> feel like is a good sign well so we'll get to Roland in a little bit yes but- we will but we jump back over to Jonas. Like I mentioned that he walks Cordelia home and mm-hmm. he's even like down to making fun of her breasts when she hugs him. Like these her two little tiny little rocks poked me. Oh my God. <laughs> and you're just like, man, you really have disdain for this lady. Yeah. And so he's contemplating what's going on, realizing that, um, that this game is more in depth and detailed than he originally thought it was. And at that moment he turns around and there are some, uh, there's some boys like pretending to be big coffin hunters. Yes. And without even thinking about it, he's so uh, um, on edge about the whole situation that he draws on them. Right. And this then, is like, interesting. Yeah. And threatens them. And the kids like basically, pee their pants and run off these little and, shits that are torturing dogs i don't really feel that bad for them yeah they were out cutting the tails of dogs off and i mean stephen king's even specific in describing the tails have coagulated blood at the end of them and the kids have been out there to- coaxing them with uh bones and we even when we're in ria's little um a uh, glass ball looking she describes the scene not realizing that those boys also call themselves the big coffin hunters because yeah. she would probably get a kick out of that information as mm-hmm. well and and so these are like delinquents i have no no sadness no love lost for him drawing a gun on him and, and scaring him off but like that's below him in a normal day well i think what's happening here is first of all he's genuinely shook right Mm -hmm. he he really thought that he was like i said the smartest man in the room but now he realizes that this young upstart has actually been getting the better of him and like managing to carry on an affair potentially under his nose without him ever catching on and so i think he's really nervous about that and really and it's manifesting itself in anger but also there's like a certain degree of transference that occurs here so he's mad at these people that he thought were kids that were playing at being big bad you know gunslinger adjacent kid you know whatever upstarts right and then Mm -hmm. here come these kids who are also pretending to be adults in this case they're pretending to be you know him and his friends and so he kind of puts his anger that should be directed at Roland and the and um Cuthbert and Elaine he transfers it to these kids and so when he lashes out at them it's kind of like what he's really kind of wanting to do is lash out at Roland and the gang hmm okay yeah I I was kind of like I don't know I was in a weird spot when I was thinking about this because at first, I almost thought, like, 
he, you know, with Roland and possibly like having gunslinger heritage and then him and his shameful, like having to leave the gunslingers mm. and not become one mm-hmm. that calling him a big coffin hunter at that moment was like interesting an insult that struck deep. Could and be. that's what made the emotions bubble up. But right. then at the same time, it's like, well, he's mad at kids and <laughs> here's a bunch of kids. Yeah. Maybe I'm digging too deep. I mean, I don't know why it couldn't be a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, right? I mean, I obviously he's got probably has some shame and anger around that. You know, he's especially after the, that cold weather where his hip was really hurt or his leg was really hurting, where he got it broken. So probably a lot of that anger is fresh at mind so i don't i don't see why that wouldn't be the case as well hmm. yeah, so basically he chases these boys off mm-hmm. and then he starts trying to think about the whole situation um he goes through it in his mind and you know you've got uh the good man farson and this latigo character that we haven't met yet and right. like we find out that Jonas has basically received a huge sum of money from Latigo mm-hmm. that he hasn't shared with his compadres yet. Of course, of course. Which, like, if he hasn't yet, is he ever going to? And do they no. know how much they're working for? <laughs> yeah, and and so uh, he, uh, one of the things I, I think he used in the description, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like, he described it, I thought, as like a um, cooking a nine-course meal. Right, like he, trying to, yeah. Yeah, and, and so he's good at, at games and figuring this sort of thing out. But like, he realizes that every single piece has to fall into place for all of this to work out correctly, and he's not sure if it can happen. Mm-hmm. And that fear, and then the fear of, of Farson using his head as a a ball in a game of polo or something like that, <laughs> um, kind of like puts him on edge some more. Yeah, to the point where if he hadn't had such anger and hatred for Roland and the gang for yeah. them getting the drop on him, he probably would have just dropped Trow and ran, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like he, he has a serious case of the fuckets at this point. If it, like you said, if it were not for the fact that he had promised himself that he would get revenge and also maybe he doesn't really want to mess with Farson and Latigo, he probably would just jump on his horse and leave. And wouldn't that be nice for our heroes? But no, no. Also like Rhea, we the in this section he starts to enact a plan right and yeah. so the all the walls are closing in on our heroes well and we find out some interesting stuff about what farson is actually interested in right and so at first you know we were sort of led to believe that horses are super important like the number of horses and good stock that they had in town right. was was like a thing that was underlined three times as being like necessary to uh farson and his his gang but it turns out the horses are like a side note and an extra Mm -hmm. you know uh frosting on top but the big thing is actually the crystal ball the oil tankers and then uh there was one other thing i think but i've forgotten it rachel do you remember um the oil tankers the crystal ball and maybe and like maybe the oxen What's that? Maybe the oxen? Uh, Maybe. Uh, Hold on. I can find out. Oh, no. Don't worry about it. It, it, It's not that big a deal. But regardless, like, those are his priorities. So he probably does have or will have access to machinery that could process that oil and turn it into uh, usable gasoline. And then 
the horses being like a ladder thought means that they're probably already well stocked up with stuff. So uh, that was pretty interesting. And then he decides like he's thinking about whether he should go to the ranch to go scope out their, their pad and see what they've got or whether he should go to the, the oil field and take a look around there. And eventually he decides to go to the oil field and mm-hmm. before I jump onto the oil field, did you have anything to add? Directly? I mean, just that this this section is the moment where the adva- any advantage that Roland had is now gone. It's done. Well, so I don't know if that's 100%. Um, because... I mean, in terms of Roland has been relying on the fact that they're underestimating him and that they don't know, you know, that they think that they don't know as they're element of surprise and that's gone now so maybe not yeah. their only but i mean like the one that they're kind of counting on is now gone yeah so basically he heads out to the oil patch he's looking around um it's pretty muddy it's been raining and so on and so the plants that they have covering up the tankers still have stayed pretty green uh it's hard to tell if there's tracks anywhere and he pretty much doesn't see anything, and he's about to go. Mm-hmm. And he looks over at this, like, kind of side road and is like, ah, I don't really feel like going up there. Right. But then, <laughs> then it, and his leg's hurting, and he wants to have a drink. And he's, his instinct sort of, like, pulls at him. And, and we get a little bit of instinct from, from everybody in this section. And mm-hmm. that instinct pulls at him, and he wanders up the road and sees a rock that has some odd holes in it, gets closer, picks it up, and realizes that it's the lookout, the rook's skull. Yeah. And then it's got Keith Burt's gold chain uh, in the in the hollow of the head, and it, it turns out it most likely came loose from his, his uh, necklace or from his holster when yeah. they were out at the Cisco patch. And because he knows that they have been there – now he knows that they know about the tankers and have been playing sly about everything that's going on at the oil patch. Yeah. It's kind of ironic that losing the lookout essentially means they're not going to see Jonas coming. Yeah. And the extra kicker here is that Jonas holds on to that and everybody in town recognizes that as belonging. Oh yeah. So now he has a, possible plant for anything that goes wrong oh shit okay right yeah as soon as you have something that's like like you know joe's ball cap that's joe's i I recognize it anywhere he's been wearing it for 20 years and like we found joe's hat at the scene of the crime (laughs) no right like open shut case oh no i wasn't sure what he was gonna do with it but i think you might be right i mean that's (laughs) that would be like that's the implied thing because jonas is about ready to ready to get rid of it he's like no this could come in handy later yeah and as soon as he said that that. it's like oh yeah yeah he's gonna plant evidence or something yep Mm. this is evidence planting well i mean that makes sense it tracks with like what his plan is that we'll get into in the next section you know that well, basically, we'll call them traitors. So that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So the one other thing I wanted to point out, and you touched on this a little bit, is that Jonas is physically exhausted and just over it and wanting to leave. But at the last minute, he's like, no, I got to do full due diligence here. I got to do my duty. And the training kind of kicks in and overpowers his desire to want to leave. And as a result, he finds something. And so, yes, 
that sucks. But also I think it really thematically drives home this idea that behaving like a gunslinger and doing following your training gives you an advantage. Whereas Roland, who isn't doing his duty, who is distracted and isn't thinking like a gunslinger right now, is letting this game of castles just completely pass him by and setting he's missing signs. He's missing important information potentially or that maybe he would have caught on to these things had he been engaged and so i think he's kind of setting himself up for failure whereas jonas is setting himself up for success (laughs) sounds like one of those like seven successful things that successful people do for success yeah mid-world tony robbins reporting for duty (laughs) over here (laughs) basically uh he's on to him and then yeah this confirms it like this before he was super suspicious now it's like case closed and i, I thought it was i, I kind of want to double back for a second and and see what you think but i thought it was super ironic that uh keith burt who's been the like detractor of roland this whole time yeah and pointing the finger at this guy for not yeah. being on top of things ends yeah. up being the linchpin that starts the starts the problems right but i wonder like what if roland had not been so distracted like if he would have been like where the hell is the lookout we need to figure out where that is that's such an obvious thing so uh he didn't mention that the lookout was missing for a while Mm. and then on top of that roland wasn't yet completely infatuated with susan when they first visited the patch Mm. that was before they were sleeping together uh, I mean, like they ended the night with that kiss and then the like, I hate you, touch your shoe. Well, so no. He... So the gang visited the patch first and then but he it's went out on and the, met her, right? It's on the road that Roland sent them to go down so that they could keep a lookout, but wouldn't be able to necessarily see what Roland and Susan uh, were up to. And they went down to keep a lookout, but lost the lost lookout. Lost the freaking lookout. The irony. Levels. Levels of irony. <laughs> <laughs> irony on irony on irony yeah okay yeah so i i think that makes it even deeper in that yeah. it's his fault that they are found out and it's also uh his undoing from running down oh, man dang yeah <laughs> okay yeah well <laughs> all right so, uh cutting back to some more um uh, uh darker times yeah uh, we we pick up with uh coral thorin uh lord thorin's sister yeah who is in a sorry state uh yeah. apparently she's been drinking pretty heavily for the last month or so and people she's been trying to hide it from folks <laughs> maybe to a, a less avail i guess mm-hmm. and so she's hung over and feeling miserable and it's you know not even um yeah evening yet yeah i have and a weird uh affection for Thorin. yeah she sort of like rolls into her own bar bitter and angry yeah. um she's kind of she basically alludes to the fact that uh she knows about uh farson and his men and yeah. their plans and and we find out she reveals how much of the the town is actually in on the plot that exactly like the entire horseman group, yes everybody and it's like uh um she uses the the old pigeon in the hand yes uh description for this mm-hmm. and, and it's interesting because she's like do we even have a pigeon in her hand <laughs> right <laughs> you know like at the end of the day who cares who collects the taxes someone's gonna get it 
and so it's like sort of a a dark almost like um fuck it everything's going She's to pot extremely just, cynical yeah yeah exactly and and then the only bright spot is that she's like well at least i own a bar and and you know i've got some jilly girls upstairs so yeah no matter what um people will always want to drink and dance and and sleep with hookers so i, I will at least have a viable business when everything goes sideways mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but she's also like sort of bitter about the town yeah. in general yeah, and, and we find out that she's been. Which one was she sleeping with? Not Jonas, but Reimer, um, grody yeah. old Doctor Death himself, Reimer. Yeah, so she's been sleeping with Reimer, and like it doesn't sound as though she's too into that. It's like no. almost like a sad, bitter thing that that's what she's left with is leftovers. I kind of feel like it's more she's doing it because it is beneficial to her from you know like a power and. You know, oh, because he's one of the movers and shakers, and so exactly. And his goal is to get power. It's advantageous so she, to be his gal, even though so she has no. Him, there's yeah. no love match there, <laughs> but she knows. She knows sleeping with him gives her certain protection, certain benefits. Yeah, yeah. So uh, basically, she um, she rolls into her own bar, uh, kind of grumbling and hungover, and uh, Patty the Trotter. <laughs> who is i guess getting um getting older yeah has had a goal of transitioning from prostitution to bartenders yes. uh, in her future um the problem is is that the current bartender uh isn't that old and she'll likely pass away before she would be able to inherit the bartending yeah. requirements there and, and it's kind of interesting because she, um as she's sort of like thinking about this coral is is like well you know there are other female bartenders and it's not unprecedented to have a female bartender this town has one and this town has one right but we already got one we don't need you yeah and so she's back behind the bar regardless and like immediately pours her uh hard hard liquor and like plops it in front of her and (laughs) coral like internally is like yes give me the booze and externally is like, and also internally is like, uh, they know, do they know about me? Yeah. <laughs> they don't have she's gone from for? being a functional <laughs> alcohol to like slowly becoming a dysfunctional alcohol. We're like, yeah, right exactly. On that and yeah. so she like yells at her, tells her to like pour it back into the bottle and then like proceeds to reach over with her pinky and just sort of like wipe up whatever she could and lick it. <laughs> Grim. And Grim. you're like, man, that's dark. And so uh, she basically uh, chases her off. Um, Sheb's there looking through sheet music, and he's, like, a little bashful of this uh, situation. And then, bam, Rhea's cat shows up. And it shows up in this, like, at first I thought he was talking about a spider. Me too. I was like, ah! Because it was, like, hissing with its green eyes. And I was yeah, like, and it, like, no! leaps at you. I'm like, what the hell? Did a spider just come out of the liquor bottle? I mean, it really, by saying instead of, like, Misty jumped up, the way that he describes it, like, you, re- he really does maxify, maximize the horror for you as a reader when that cat arrives. Mm-hmm. So the the cat shows up, and in the meantime, um, Jonas also sort of rolls in. And so she gingerly grabs the note off the cat, takes a look at it, and basically it's a request from Rhea to fill up her alcohol uh, stash or, you know, wine barrels or whatever graft barrel she has back at her, her love shack. 
Right. <laughs> and uh, and she's about to uh, to send Shimi, but she realizes it's getting late, and she doesn't feel even Shimi deserves to be sent up there. Right. <laughs> to, to be there at night for fear of like Rhea cursing him or doing any number of other um, horrible things to him. Right. So she asked Jonas to put the note on there that says tomorrow and send the cat off. And we get a little insight into first Patty's efforts to be a bartender. Like when she rolls into the bar, she's like, man, it's cleaned up. It's nice. Mm -hmm. It's fixed up. And then we get a little insight on her feelings about Shimi too. And Shimi would clean the spit buckets and do the basics, but that sort of cleaning wasn't his level of expertise. And so when she calls for Shimi, she like almost has a fondness for him and Mm -hmm. sends him back. And even tells him to like tend to his flowers and cover them up so that they, you know, don't get damaged by the weather that's yeah coming yeah. in. And, and so those little brief moments, like everybody has a warm spot for Shimi. Well, I think, yeah, there's a lot of little details in this section that I really like. Before we get into the se- sort of second half of this, mm-hmm. um, I'm glad you brought up the Shimi thing because I know we talked about you can tell a lot about the character of someone based on the way that they treat. He's the litmus test. Right. And I, I, this chapter starts with her kind of walking towards the bar and reminiscing about being a child and, and kind of uh, upset about the fact that she sort of ended up where she is and wondering how she got there. And so you really do kind of get the sense that Coral is not a bad person. Like there are bad people in this book that are truly like craven bad people and coral is not necessarily one of them like you might put her in the column of the antagonist but i feel like she is quite clearly a product of her environment as opposed to like an innate evil nature and it's reinforced by the way that she treats shimi you know she like you said she's goes out of her way to kind of be kind to him and speak to him gently. And also when she, at the thought of sending him up to Rhea at night, she's like, I'm not going to do that to this kid. And so she, she tells her, you know, tomorrow. And those are all things that tell you a lot about Coral. Well, even in her um, disdain for uh, uh, Patty, the trotter, like she's not like, she's not mean outright. She looks at her hands and realizes that Patty's had to sell off her rings to buy food Yes. And she looks at her chest and her neck and, like, sees almost, like, a lizard skin. Yeah. And, like, is sad for her. Mm-hmm. And even to the point when she um, tells her to pour that back into the bottle and get out of here, <laughs> she notices and is sort of saddened by her makeup and it cracking in yeah. corners, um, almost, like, breaking the facade of, of her hopes and dreams of being a bartender yeah and those little moments like you don't notice those if you're evil prick you notice those if like you're a empathetic person person who's stuck in a you know tough world yeah she is a unique character in this book i think you know she is the only woman in this well i mean ria has her own thing but In terms of in town in Hanbury, she's kind of the only self-made woman, the only person who has any kind of security. But you can see what earning that in this kind of system has done to her. And the compromises she's having to make and the effect that it's having on her. And it kind of, this whole sort of section to me sort of reinforces this continued theme of how fragile women's lives are in Hanbury. You know, 
we've got her who's who's kind of doing what she has to do to get by and it taking a real toll emotionally and psychologically and physically on her and then you also have petty the trotter who you know she's found her own way by doing sex work but that has a short a, a shorter shelf life and now she's going into this part of her life where she, all of the security that she had is going away to the point like those little details about her pawning her rings her food and it really mm-hmm. shows you a what coral accomplished and and what it's cost her but also kind of the cost of women not taking care of other women you know she has empathy for her and she can see the situation she's in but at the end of the day she's not going to give Petty the Trotter that bartending job. So, I don't know. I just felt like it's an interesting... It doesn't really, as far as I know, impact the plot that much. So it's an interesting thing that Stephen King kind of took the time to delve into these women's lives in this book. And I, I, I appreciate it. I thought it was really interesting because I do think that you can fall into this spinster virginal maiden dichotomy for the most part with these characters or like the crone. And and those are all very archetypical female characters. And then you introduce Coral, and she's much more complex and much more – you can kind of see almost a modern woman in her, which I, I just think it, it enriches the book and makes Coral a uniquely interesting character in this book. Well, she gets a little more interesting <laughs> here in a second. Well, she also is someone who is very comfortable with her own sexuality. <laughs> yeah, so after they send the cat off, she basically, like, rolls up to Jonas and is like – Hey, you you want to go upstairs? Like I might not be much to look at, but I can still spread them with the best of them. <laughs> and like Jonas, like looks at her and he's like, I don't know, you look like Cordelia, but boy, the difference. <laughs> and like, yeah. and she says, like, I I, I just want to let you know, I've been known to say some nasty things. And he is into <laughs> it, dude. He is so he. Like, and he's like, I, I am all so ears, my lady. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh God. There's a, a detail too where where um uh Jonas pets the cat and they talk, you know, or and it's unpleasant to the touch. It's like damp feeling, and it just made me remember that. Rhea was just licking this cat and I'm like is it chicken and the egg you know what I mean is it gross because it's getting licked by Leah or Rhea or is Rhea just licking a gross cat either way it's really upsetting and I don't like it I don't like it yeah and so basically uh Jonas is like sure but just a sec babe stay right there and like he walks across the bar over to Reynolds is like hey man get a gang together and have them hang out at the Cisco patch because uh if those guys head that direction, we want someone to get the drop on him and just shoot him sight on or sight and scene. And he's like, what? And he's like, make sure they're, you know, uh, a good group and that uh, they've got their heads on straight. And so, okay. And then he's like, all right, now let's go upstairs. And just like walks back. It's like Jonas is so on task with this um, game he's playing that he stops from this like, otherwise bestial action of like rolling upstairs for a night of romping to be like hey here do this this and this go (laughs) and then like and it's funny because reynolds is like you got a lady waiting for you and he looks over at uh at coral and he's like really (laughs) and he's like yeah i don't joke about i don't joke about women and it's like that part like it caught it took me back for a second i just kind of had to stop and laugh (laughs) 
<laughs> because like Coral like kind of insults herself, right? But then like you know people are always harder on themselves than reality reflects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then like for Reynolds to be like, really, you're gonna sleep with that? <laughs> I know it's so brutal. It's so I mean, but it felt like a very real interaction. <laughs> Yeah. But I, I, at the same time, I kind of, I mean, I feel so, like, Jonas is such an interesting, complex character. Like, I like how he's like, yeah, I'm not joking. I'm about it. Fuck off. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, Jonas, you tell him. Um, the other thing I think is interesting here is uh, he doesn't just say, like, let's get an ambush together in case they show up. He basically ends this by saying he's going to kind of force a confrontation. So if Roland has been waiting for him to make the move tomorrow's the day yeah and we don't know what that move is yet but he's definitely got some plans um, and we'll hear we can maybe uh well he walks right up to the line of telling you what he's going to be up to yeah but doesn't cross it well, he says so, he's going to make them angry and confused and i feel at least 50 percent of that because i am very confused <laughs> well i mean you know um if they got a cabin or something you know they're staying somewhere like their stuff's there you could probably go poop on it or you know something like i don't know why i went to poop <laughs> i'm not sure but i i <laughs> i think i would feel confused and angry if somebody did that to me <laughs> so you're not wrong <laughs> I, I may have accidentally drifted over to rate my poo.com today oh <laughs> no just... my God. so i'm oh. surprised you didn't comment on uh coral's uh feisty nips no <laughs> <laughs> i thought for sure that was gonna get a mention I mean, you know, he does reach up and grab, but like we've had so much boob talk in this yeah. chapter. We're over that, it. Like, We're so grown up. Yeah, I yeah. mean, like, yeah, he grabs her nipples. Like, okay, great. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, it's you know, it's fine. Like, uh, it's same thing with the romp in the in the oil patch. Like, yeah, two lovers and her screaming his name. It's like, well, you know, we already know they're fuskin. Like, we don't really need to like cover that over and over again. <laughs> I mean, if you want to read that and blush, like, you go do it. But uh, it's implied. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. However, this is not implied. I'm uh, like, if you're someone uh, who doesn't want to talk about banging, I got bad news for you. Yeah, I know. So so Coral and, and Jonas basically have, like, a wild and crazy night. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them comment that this is probably the best sex they've ever had. Yes. Uh, Coral wakes up. And like feels refreshed, yeah. Although sore in every part of her body. All right, get it, girl. And she like looks over and notices that the bottle of booze that they brought up is at the exact same level as when they came up. Yeah, which basically indicates that they were overly occupied and did not have time to address mm-hmm. said booze. No, 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 no. And so, and she even mentions like she has a clear head, and the sex really helped. And. And their then, head full vagina. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'll probably cut that. <laughs> and, and so um, she's looking at Jonas and Jonas is like getting dressed. We notice right away that Jonas has a bunch of scars across his back. And we've sort of gotten hints of Jonas being a failed gunslinger before. Mm-hmm. And even like some mentions of cord. Yeah. And so... I believe that we can infer that those wounds on his back may very well have been inflicted by cord when he oh, was. Oh, you think? Was in? Yeah, I think so. Because like, well, I know earlier Cord's on, dad in this, broke his leg. What's that? Cord's dad broke his leg. Yeah, yeah, and 
and so there's the leg breaking, but also like whipping, you know, like if you're thrown out and sent west. Oh, you, you think that's a part of it? You get whipped? Yeah. Like oh, if you're, interesting. you're broken, you know, like you did something really horrible, like you get your your lashes and then you get sent off. Oh, that's interesting. I had not and, put that together. I just was kind of like, he. I mean, we know he's a no good Nick. So like what, what did he do to get himself, you know, scarred up like that you know but well in the old times like you had two forms of punishment and in one was like death right and the lesser one was usually like whipping right right and i figured that was what he had been punished for something i just didn't it hadn't occurred to me that it was part of the process of being expelled from you know the gunslinger academy maybe i'm writing uh, myself into this too much but like Every every old timey movie, it's like, oh, uh, Jones Jonesy over there, he uh, slept with the mayor's wife, and he got whipped fourteen times, and then sent out into the desert. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, that makes sense. I it just hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, I, yeah. I assumed it was more just like whatever you know he got into post going west, like he got into deep, and that's maybe why he also has that part of him that's just like when my instincts tell me I need to go, I need to go but he's ignoring those instincts right now. Yeah, maybe. But I I don't know. I mean, I may be linking the wrong things to the right reasons, but that's what it felt like to me anyway. Interesting. Um, Especially since like Stephen King took time to dwell on that a bit. Yeah. And we've also had these like hints of court and uh, Jonas's relationship. Right. In the past. Right. And his father and so on. So it's like, and and the leg keeps coming up too, which means like, I, I don't know if it means, hey, look at my back, but to me it sort of felt that way mm. um and so he basically tells her like look i need to find some paint don't care what color <laughs> right i need to find a dog's tail and um i don't think i want to tell you much more than that and so let me stop there and ask you like does that feel like he got the idea from the kids he drew on earlier that he wants to make something that he does look like those kids did it i mean i think he maybe i don't know like I, those kids he are wants like a dog that tails, still right? he, well he wants a dog that still has a, a tail so i'm like is he gonna tie the paint to the dog's tail like oh i, I see but, I or do you think was, he's gonna go cut a dog's tail off i thought he was gonna go cut a dog's tail off and mm. you know so like if you see kids running around with dog's tails yeah. and then like you could you do find anything a dog tail will. somewhere like it's the same plant as you would have with the uh, oh. uh with the rook skull right yeah i guess so i hadn't thought i thought he i foolishly thought the dog was going to get to keep its tail <laughs> oh no 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 i i think i think said dog will lose a tail but we'll, no. we'll find out i don't know if that's the case or not oh no poor dog poor Poor fictional dog i know i don't i mean i can deal with a lot in books the one thing i can't handle is animal cruelty so if it happens i hope it's like no details because i can't i can't i'm too soft when it comes to that stuff you've got three stars here did i miss anything no i mean we we covered most of it the one last thing i would say is that this sort of closes and you mentioned it uh with an interact interesting interaction an interesting interaction between jonas and coral <laughs> Say that three times fast. <laughs> i don't think i can <laughs> where they talk about how great the sex was i mean it's sort of offhand but it's kind of an odd moment um and it, to me it sort of humanized them a bit you know like they're very much 
antagonist, particularly Jonas, so two varying degrees. But what this kind of moment to me, and you can tell me if you interpreted it differently, but I, I kind of felt like it was a moment of saying that these characters, maybe they're villains to some degree, but they're not always just like twirling their mustaches and being villainous. Like they can have these human, very human moments where they do something like have satisfying casual sex, which is just normal, you know? And I think that it, it humanizes the character, the villains in a way that makes them more interesting, makes them in the case of Jonas, makes him scarier, makes him, makes him feel like too, Roland very much feels like a real person. And now Jonas also with these little details, the more we find out about him, the more he feels like a full fleshed out person, not a good person, but a person. And I think that anytime you do that, it enhances a story, but that's, that's my take. What do you think about that? I sort of thought it was something else. So uh, she's wallowing in like self pity and he's sort of in the same zone with like being out thought of again by a, yeah young person yeah and so it it sort of to me felt like stephen king was describing two broken people coming together and like completing Mm -hmm. each broken half yeah yeah i think that's true yeah and like a crossing in the night and like it's not as though it's going to be a thing forever but the that moment they're both in their same level of despair right yeah no i think that's probably true and I think that lends itself to the fact that it is a humanizing moment because you can, you as a person can identify, maybe you haven't had that experience, but like you can wrap your brain around and empathize with that kind of situation. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. And it enriches, it enriches the characters. I think. <laughs> I, I love Coral. I, I I don't know. Maybe I'll change my mind and she's going to do something terrible and I'll hate her. I, I don't know. But I just think she's such an interesting character. I wish we had gotten in her head sooner. I would have liked more of her, I think. I don't know if I love her as a character, but I think she's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, you I mean, I think up... it might tell you more about me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like this bitter old bitch. Like, yeah, yeah. More of that. <laughs> you tell him. You tell him, Coral. Um, okay. So o- overall, what did you think of this, this uh, chapter? Um, I thought it was it was interesting. I'm getting a little impatient. I want things to happen. I'm like, come on, let's do this. Let's pull this trigger. I mean, I suspect I'm going to regret those feelings as soon as it happens. It's um, going to move fast and you're going to be like, wait, wait, yes, hold on. Yes, this feels like the part on a ride where you've like reached, the, you're like tick, 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 and you're just like hanging over the edge and we've just been hanging over that edge. Um, but maybe the brakes just released, right? Because now Cordelia's done her part, Rhea's enacting her plan. Jonas is now on to Roland and he's enacting his plan. Like it feels like we are this has gotta be heading until to like an actual collision at this point. <laughs> so but yeah, I liked it. Liked, didn't love. How about you? Nah, you know, um I'm always a little like less interested in the character building <laughs> chapters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um yeah. I, but like overall like I like some of the backstory stuff, definitely the Farson and Latigo business. Yeah. Um really we actually got to like that. see a little bit of that and mm-hmm. you just left you like hungry to to know what else is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um even like the cliffhanger we basically end this chapter with is like damn it. <laughs> Yeah. Like you found him at the oil patch. Uh, you said you could go to their cabin another day. Like we obviously know you're going to go to the cabin. What are you going to do? <laughs> right. Right. And it's so like, and then you don't get it. And so 
uh, when you end a chapter that way, it's like, damn it, Stephen King, you're just page turning me now. <laughs> Although, like I said, I feel like when it happens, we're going to be like, no, let's go back to the part where we were just st- sitting in the eye of the storm. No, <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. All right. Speaking of getting to the next part, plan for the next episode. For those of you who are reading along with us, uh, we're going to be covering Wizard and Glass Part 3, Come Reap, Chapter 4, Roland and Cuthbert, Sections 1 through 12. 1 through 12. Um, otherwise, it's a really long chapter. <laughs> so, DJ, 1 through 12. Through 12. Uh, so, listen to 12. When it says 13, cut it. <laughs> no no connection to the Stephen King oh no that's not true I mean it's not a connection to another book but I can't believe we didn't talk about it what, what? Um, in the section with Coral where she's walking down the road she remembers someone that had come through the town before do you remember that uh, vaguely okay so she talks about she's like oh what's happened to me good lord blah 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 and then she's like oh that reminds me of that preacher woman that came through town oh yes Sylvia yes. Pitson yeah, you're right. So we had both Sheb and Sylvia Pitson in this chapter, which are two characters, obviously, who come from Toll. And I just, it's it's a little mention, but I do kind of love the way that it kind of reorients you in the world, right? Like that these mm-hmm. characters have been, you know, moving around in this area long before we cross paths with them in the Gunslinger. At this point, Roland has no idea who Sylvia Pitson is, but obviously she's going to matter later. The question is, was she just a crazy preacher lady then? Or was she already kind of getting into the mix with the, the man in black and whatnot at this point? Like she's the um, that preacher from Johnny Mnemonic. Yes. Yes. Big <laughs> adult thought, long side, vibes. Church. <laughs> I love that movie. All right, so we got some listener feedback this week. We got a couple emails from listeners. This first letter comes from John. Now, this one's called Casting Call. And he says, long days and pleasant nights. Here's my casting for some of the characters. I already gave you my pick for Susan Delgado, Cuthbert, and Elaine. For Walter slash Randall Flagg, it would be Christopher Hayerdahl. Now, did you ever watch Hell on Wheels? I believe I've seen that. Okay, so do you remember the Swede from he- from Helen Wheels? Like the I'm psycho. Be with you and say that other than the name and title, I don't remember. Totally squad. fair. So the Swede was kind of the villain of that, and he was really, really genuinely creepy. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, maybe. Um, he he has a more personable face than right. some of the other characters we've right. seen play him. And I do like the longer face for a Randall flag. Yeah, yeah. Um, and especially the gaunt, sort of like sunken eyes. Mm-hmm. I do think he the eyes are kind of perfect for it because he's kind of hypnotic looking. And he is able to kind of exude menace. So I think actually that's a really good casting idea. But if you're going to go his route, then like wouldn't you almost go to, is it Hugh Laurie? Is that? Hugh Laurie, that's an interesting casting. The guy who played House, right? Yes, I know exactly who you mean. Because yeah. like you're you're basically taking this this gentleman's features and like racking them up a notch and <laughs> making them even more like pointy and like brooding. Yeah. And he has such like a uh, angry resting face and like brooding deep thought looking style to himself. Yeah. Which is weird cuz he did comedy. 
Right. But he also can be a dramatic actor. And I feel like sometimes the best people who play the best villains are people who can be that, who come from comedy, right? And they can kind of switch between two. If you're going to go this route, you know, you just go one level up. (laughs) Right. Fair, fair. Okay. So then his other casting for this episode is for the Sheriff of Hambry, you know, Mr. Who don't go in there. He says he'd like to see Brandon Gleason play that role. Now, I know you don't know who Brandon Gleason is, so I'm going to put a link in the <laughs> chat. So he actually uh, is the main character in uh, Mr. Mercedes. So this would be like a, a good like Stephen King adaptation crossover. I mean, yeah, he sort of has like a Lord of the Rings look to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's kind of like a beardy British dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess from the perspective of, like, the time frame in which this is in, you put him in cowboy wear and take away the scarf that is in this yeah. picture. Yeah. And he could probably pull it off. Yeah. He's a very good actor. So, I mean, he would definitely elevate the character. So, yeah, that's interesting. I could get down with that. I approve. Hmm. Okay. For older Roland, I have to agree with the listener who picked Anson Mount. So, we're just getting, like, a full Hell on Wheels reunion here. <laughs> and or for Or Andrew Lincoln, Rick Grimes from The Walking Dead. So I have a, <laughs> I don't like Rick Grimes. So, I mean, the character, I don't like Rick Grimes. So I'm just like immediately like, <sighs> but I could totally see that for, I, I'm physicality wise, for sure. I could see that. So I don't know. For some reason, I was feeling a little bit of, of Steve Buscemi in there. So Steve Buscemi, that's interesting. For, Did, wait, wait, hold on. For Roland? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not for Roland. <laughs> I was like, what? Uh, I was, I'm sorry. I like, uh, for some reason, I was thinking of Jonas, and I was like, you know, S- Steve Buscemi would make a good Jonas. Yeah, I could see Steve Buscemi, because he also has kind of a reedy voice anyway. So I yeah, could definitely... and like him playing like, a, especially at his older age, where like he's an actor that is aged gracefully into like an even more sinister version of himself. <laughs> Have you ever seen that SNL skit where they're like, it's like it was after the sex scandals at the colleges and they're like, the, they're having a press conference about him not being a sex offender, despite looking like a sex offender. <laughs> 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 I'll send you a link to it. It's really, it's really funny in the he also has a really interesting casting for Rhea. Let me pull up the picture or it won't work. Now, we had been going like old, grody white lady. Mm-hmm. He went beautiful young black woman. <laughs> but, 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 but I can see why one particular character would make this work. And I kind of like the idea of obviously guns you know dark tower so white like let's let's mix up some diversity so anytime we can infuse some more diversity i'm about it so he suggested naomi harris in the style that she was in pirates of the caribbean end of the world okay clicking on link oh yeah that works right it's i mean she's still too young so they would have to like old her up like crazy but i do think it speaks to the fact that you could take a, a really good actor and through makeup and special effects and prosthetics, maybe create a Rhea. All right. Next letter. We got a message from our friend, David. <laughs> hey, Rach and DJ. Love the show. The Dark Tower is my absolute favorite book series. I have read it twice and listened to it three times. And listening to your show has opened my eyes to things that I missed on those previous occasions. You say true. And I say thank you. <laughs> i always love it when people mix in the slang it makes me feel like like we're very in group you know what i mean i don't know 
I just started listening to the Gunslinger again today, and I can't wait to catch up with you guys, even though I will still listen to your new shows in the meantime. Man, we go slow. You'll catch up. <laughs> Don't worry, brother. You'll be with us in no time. Just a few things. I know you are both listening to the books. Uh, I felt so much more involved in the story the first time I listened to the books and found myself pulled deeply into Roland's world. The narrator, Frank Muller, is absolutely incredible. Agree, 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 agree. Um, unfortunately, Wizard and Glass is the last book he narrates. Meh. As he was in a horrific motorcycle accident in 2001 and remained hospitalized until his death in 2008. Ooh. Wow, I did not know that. That's Ooh. dark. Ooh, that is really dark. That's a long time. Ooh. Although George Goodall uh, did a wonderful job with the rest of the series, Frank Muller will always have the voice of Eddie Dean for me. Oh, yeah, I agree. When that change happened, I was like, no, right, no. right. No, don't do that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that always happens that if you get really used to a narrator, you don't want the voice to change. Like there's did you ever listen to those Dresden books? Yes, the the ghost one, the ghost. Oh, when there's like yep. for one book, it's not the same narrator. It, it was it, like I couldn't even get into the story. I, I returned to the book and tell them. <laughs> I was like, no, I am not ever doing this. If it's not Marster, yeah. it's not for me. Yeah, I was <laughs> so then, relieved. Like, I get a notification like about six months later that the book has reappeared with uh marster reading it really the other guy yeah oh shit you know what i should go back and listen to that one again because i know i just half-assed listened to it because it was it was like james marsters or gtfo yeah and the other guy was too upbeat he was just like oh no <laughs> i mean maybe he would have been and you're like where's yeah. the sultry detective that yeah. i'm falling in love with yeah well we'll see how that goes when we switch to good all uh, in i guess pretty soon like a couple months well so even uh that's interesting though because the very first book was read by someone completely different as well it was it the version i listened to the voice changes from the first book to the second book i wonder if you guadaled the first book and then switched to mueller and then are going back to guadal oh i don't know because i think he eventually did all the books i think that am i lying no yeah no i'm pretty sure that's true Oh, so okay. I wonder if you already did a little flipso change and don't even Most realize of. it. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Rodney Dangerfield, absolute gold. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, DJ, for almost running me off the road on my way to work. It was totally worth it. <laughs> yeah, never sees that one coming. No, 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 no. <laughs> and I'm so glad. Uh, okay, Rachel, I know you have talked several times about Jake's Twitter, and I think another listener wrote in about it as well. I will not spoil it for you. But know that you will absolutely find out who it is in book seven. Oh, that's exciting. That is very exciting. Um, Then he talks about the pink glass, which I'm not going to read in case it is too spoilery for people. But thank you for that information. Thanks for the wonderful show. Long days and pleasant nights, David. Awesome. Thanks, David. Awesome letter, David. Thank you so much for writing in. I'm glad you enjoyed Rodney Dangerfield. It never stops being funny to me. (laughs) <laughs> it lives rent free in my head. If it really, if if you guys are laughing about it, imagine being there live. <laughs> so let's move on to the question from the Facebook. All right. So this time I asked the listeners on our Facebook group, which, by the way, if you're not on the Facebook group, you're missing out. You should come over and join us. Basically, we've talked about this quite a bit on this review, but. All these pieces are sort of coming together. The noose is sort of tightening around our gunslingers' necks, even though they don't realize it because they need to wake the F up. But it showed to me what a rich 
a large number of villains we have in this book and how interesting they are. And so I, my question was, if you were able to get sort of like a prequel story to any of the villains in the book, which one would you want it to be about and why? So do you have a an answer for that, DJ? Is it just the villains here or like anywhere? Just in the book. So that could be Blaine, Rhea, Jonas, DePape, Reynolds, Cordelia, Reimer, Mayor, Creepy Hands, Thorin, and I'm probably forgetting somebody. Damn it, because I kind of wanted to go back and um, the Brick guy, I wanted to know all of his The backstory. Brick guy? You mean TikTok man? Is the Brick guy the TikTok man? The guy that drops a brick on... Oh, Mort. On... Jack Mort. Yeah. yeah, I kind of want to know his whole history because like... It seems like he's been a serial killer for many years yeah. and like he has like a Dexter thing going that you could probably <laughs> dig deep into. Yeah. He's probably been creepazoiding for a minute. Yeah. Hmm. Um, as far as the like local cast and crew, yeah. uh, honestly, that's a hard one. I, I feel like I kind of want to know um, more about Blaine, I guess. Is yeah. Probably that's the fair. Most- so, because I'm 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 looking at all these characters, and like, even if you don't get a backstory on them, you sort of get enough of a view of what they're up to and what they're like to get a three dimensional story. Mm-hmm. But with Blaine, if you think about him from a character perspective, at one point he was a pleasant, happy train whose pleasant, happy job was to pleasantly drive you around places and pleasantly provide comfort and creature comforts for you to get from place to place. And then, like, how did he devolve from, from like, you know, a, a happy door in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to like <laughs> Marvin the Robot? <laughs> yeah, good, good, yeah, mm-hmm. good question. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the thing with Blaine that would be interesting is not just his story, but it would be sort of a backdoor way of getting to find out a lot about the world before it moved on. Yeah, like and also like old the other ones. train, yeah, and, like what the technology was like in the city, what the whole gunslinger mythos was around like the downtown proper. Uh-huh. I mean, there was the giant statue of a gunslinger there, and like what that all means. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, see that that's that's very tempting, very tempting. I mean, you could almost go like three or four books deep into that. Yeah, I mean, like you think edition. like, oh, you want to hear about a train? But actually, yeah, I really do. And then the spinoff is two trains sleeping together. (laughs) (laughs) Two trains, one cup. No, no, no. Cut it. (laughs) Someone write that fanfic now. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm tempted by the Blaine, but I have to go. For me, it's got to be Rhea. And the reason is I feel like you could have a really cool character arc with her. Like, how did she become this horrible, nasty person that she is now? You know, like, was she just like kind of a, a misbehaving girl when she was young or was she always this way i want to know that i want to know how she learned all the magic that she's learned like i feel like there could be a really cool story there and she's so old that it could go back however long she's maybe gone to different worlds she's studied with different like magic people i just feel like there could be a really really rich history with she was a scientist in the city of lud before she escaped from exile yeah i mean like maybe she's not really a villain maybe she i mean she is but maybe she's also an extremely tragic character you know you just don't know i feel like there's un i don't know the snake and the cat thing like don't necessarily paint a formerly tragic character it's not good it's not good it's not good but i just think it could be really interesting okay so the listeners chimed in let's see here so sheldon says he would like a backstory of eldred jonas his backstory involves failing at his gunslinger test and being sent west and there's probably no bean flicking (laughs) 
<laughs> to which I said, disqualified for lack of beanslicking. Tim agrees he would love to have a backstory of Jonas, especially his failure to become a gunslinger. Any world building and insight into the gunslinger training is always welcome. See, he's thinking like me, like, how do you how do you get the Expand. other questions answered? At the same time. <laughs> uh, he also is interested. He'd love one about Blaine as well. Like what is Patricia like? What was like? What was it like during the salad days of Lud? See? Yes. Agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, was he always a pain? Maybe he was. Maybe he was always kind of a dick. You never know. More on Rhea would be interesting. But I'm hard pressed to want to spend any more time with her than I have to, to be honest. So foul. Fair, very fair. I feel like those last few chapters would be pretty rough. Yeah, yeah. John says, for me, it would be Rhea. Yes, Team Rhea. I believe she is from another world. Mm. Jonas, which would then lead to DePape and Reynolds' background. And uh, last but not least, Blaine. All right. Uh, Scott says, my gut reaction was Jonas. I think Rhea would have a much more interesting story to tell, though. Fair. I mean, here's the yeah. thing is I would gladly take any of these. Well, so really, like, this is where a comic book would shine is like if we could get comic book versions of a lot of these Ooh. side stories. Yeah. Like, that, that is a deep trove that is yet to be uh, franchised by Stephen King. I mean, he writes like tons of collections, right? Like, can we get a bunch of novellas about them? Sure. I would happily it. take that. Someone get old King on the phone. Ringy dingy. Let's make this happen. <laughs> um, Chris says he wants Jonas as well. Uh, Jonas is the first backstory that comes to mind, but I think Coral Thorne. Oh, yeah. Team Coral Thorne would make a great backstory. It could re- open right where she and Reynolds. Oh, spoilers. All right. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. You're throwing the stuffy man into the fire. Yes. Yes. Uh, right before she and Reynolds head into town where they are gunned down and flashback to her early years. Ooh. Learning how uh, a woman in this era became so wealthy and eventually owned the most profitable whorehouse in Magus would be fascinating. We would also learn how she how she was instrumental in the murder of Pat Delgado <gasps> and brokered services uh, of Jonas and his crew. Oh, damn. Coral's all up in the mix, dude. I had no idea. Okay. So those are who our listener or who our Facebook friends would like to be, um, have a backstory for, but I would like to hear from listeners too. You know, if you're not on the Facebook group, you can, you can always drop us a line at cast zombiegirls.com and let us know. And, uh, if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on Apple podcasts. And if you really love the show, uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon where you will get extended episodes and bonus episodes. For instance, this week, we are having a little bit of a trivia game, and we have- You might a... also find out about Grandma's Tongue. Oh, God. <laughs> well, for the Grandma's Tongue alone, it's worth it. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, we're going to be we're gonna have a guest. Uh, Mars from the Stream Queens will be joining us, and her and DJ will be doing a little bit of Stephen King book trivia, so that should be fun. Oh, man, I'm going to be so bad at this. Nope, you're not. You're going to be great. You're going to be great. I've set you guys up to succeed. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. But before we I, – I know I'm sounding like I'm wrapping up, but I'm not because we actually do have a little bit more, and I did this out of order. Sorry. We are going to quickly run through our review of ch- episode three of the Stand Blank page. So I'm going to read you a little bit of synopsis, CJ, and then I want you to tell me what you think about what has occurred. Sound good? Lay it on me, Rachel. Okay. So 
in the past couple of episodes, it's really been broken into two characters that we followed, but this time it really does focus on, it's more like three. So it's Stu, Nick, and Nadine. So we'll start with Stu. The first time we see Stu in this episode, he and Larry are walking down the road when a man in a bloody Lamborghini comes pulling up and falls out and he has wounds consistent with a crucifixion. Book readers know what this means. And he has come from Vegas with a warning that, quote unquote, he's coming. So they take the man to the hospital where Fran is there in the middle of getting an ultrasound. And Nick is waiting for them with a note asking if the man has come from Vegas. What do you think? Okay, so pause. So basically, uh, he was hung up uh, on a cross. Also sort of like has a stigmata thing going. Yes. And is like sort of spouting some weirdness about like maybe he can't die until he's delivered his message yeah yeah i I feel like we're getting into some of the spooky stuff which i'm i i love all of the um pandemic stuff it's a little close to home at the moment but i'm ready for more of those supernatural aspects to start coming through and this is i think the first time we've had some spooky dooky stuff but or we've had some supernatural stuff but it wasn't quite in the spooky department so this was our first kind of creepy moment which i was into and i'm ready for yeah yeah it's good um (laughs) the problem with the the stand in general is like because they jump around so much um i feel like they're disadvantaging folks that are just jumping into this like yeah like uh you know uh without any real stand reference whatsoever because it just flies all over the place and it's even to the point where like you're not sure which little kid is supposed to be being represented right? in like some of the early scenes before they finally like explain heavy handedly what, what you were supposed to already pick up. Yeah. I, like I said to you before the show, this is not a show you can watch and like kind of look at your phone. Like, yeah. You have to be focused or you're mm-hmm. going to be lost. Cause not only are we skipping between characters, we're skipping around in time. So it's like the 3d chess of TV watching. <laughs> it's, it's a lot to keep track of and a lot to write a synopsis of. Let <laughs> me tell you. All right. So speaking of flashbacks, we get a flashback here to when Sue and Fran briefly cross paths on their various trips that they're taking across the country. I think Stu initially kind of wants to join up with them, but of course Harold freaks out. He's not having it with like Mr. Dimples. No, he's not joining them. <laughs> no, Mr. Dimples. I, I listen. I know. I know Harold is a bad guy. I know he's like big incel energy, but there's. I think the actor is so compelling that I'm having trouble hating Harold. Are you having really? this experience at all? No, uh, he is, for me at least, very easy to be like, oh, that guy. I think I just find, it's not that I like him, I find him compelling. So whenever well, he's on screen, I'm like, oh. It's super heavy-handed when he was like, you could go with that guy, Mr. Nipples over there, or this guy who's saved your life, taken care of you, fed you, done all these things for you. Yeah. And it's like almost like a, a bad, abusive guilt trip. Yeah, I don't know. You've never been on the other end of one of those. It felt a little real to me. No, and yeah, no, no. I'm usually fairly reasonable with my significant others. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I mean, like someone else is doing it to you. No, nope, nope. Not really. I will say that is a very unaffected (laughs) technique with me. I'm like, oh. (laughs) Goodbye. Hello, Mr. Dimples. <laughs> it would not, <laughs> that would not be effective for me. Um, okay. So 
even though things don't go well with him, he does cross paths with a dog named Kojak, which is hella cute. And I immediately was like Googling, does the dog die? Because <laughs> I want to see the dog die. Well, we also get a reveal on like animal life in general. Because like, yes. when he was locked away, they were tested on guinea pigs because they said it affected in the same way. But like apparently deer are fine and only some dogs are fine. So like that almost uh, gives you a dogs go to heaven sort of vibe. Yeah, <laughs> that's like, a good point. Only the good dogs get to live. Well, I guess and, not all dogs go to heaven. <laughs> and it's like, so you're saying that some dogs are assholes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he has an owner named Glenn, and the two of them strike up a, a conversation. They have dinner together. They hang out. They talk about society for a while and whether or not it should be restarted. And the next morning, Stu is snooping around, and he finds some paintings of Mother Gail, Mother Abigail and Franny, and they realize they are having the same dream. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, he's sort of, like, got a seer thing going on, and he's seeing it into his paintings. Mm-hmm. So there's a potential Dark Tower crossover Easter egg in this section that I don't... You'd have to be a total nerd to catch, fortunately, I'm a total nerd. So when he's looking at the paintings, there's the one of Mother Abigail, which we recognize is in like her little corn maze. But the one of Franny is very distinct because it actually looks like another real world painting, which is called Christina's World by Andrew Wyeth. Does that sound familiar to you? No, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. Well, it's because we've actually talked about that exact painting on the podcast. Oh. <laughs> yes. The, the part where Jake is, it was in the last book, so it was months ago, but Jake uh, is in the museum and he's looking at paintings and he, I think, think this is true. I don't know. The point is he refers to this as being his favorite painting. Uh, this one called Christina's World that looks almost exactly like, like the composition and the, the, she's not laying down, but she is like standing in the same place as the woman is with the house in the background in the field. It's like very clearly meant to be the same painting or similar to that painting, inspired by that painting. So mm. it's a very small Easter egg for mega nerds, but I do think it is an intentional Easter egg. Oh, well, that's cool. In the same way that, like, when you watch The Mist, at the beginning of The Mist, he's painting, and there's a painting of Roland surrounded by roses. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. It's clearly mm. Roland. So, yeah. So, there's just a, a fun little Easter egg for us uh, Dark Tower nerds. Any other thoughts on the on the on his talk about society or anything? I mean, they just smoke a lot of pot and hang out, and, like, you get the backstory of his, his dead wife. Um, the society stuff, like... I mean, yeah, any go to any college dorm room where people are smoking pot and you can hear the like, what about this man? And like, that's the level of depth that we get from that conversation. Fair enough. All right. Back at the hospital in present day, um, the five folks are like fighting about whether they should start an election or, you know, if they have any right to be in control of this uh, commune or whatever. And then Mother Abigail shows up and is just like, no, nah, shut it down, shut it down. We're not having this conversation. By the way, Nick speaks for me. So keep it moving. And everybody shuts up and knows their place. And Mother Abigail comes in. So she comes in, she sits down, she holds hands with the guy that showed up on the road. And he gives her the backstory of how he got there, that he had come from Las Vegas, that he, um, at first it was great, but then slaves started showing up. And so he wanted to leave, but he got caught sneaking out and ended up getting crucified and only taken down in order to give her a message. And then he goes full possession and says, you know, like, I'm going to come and blow your house down. 
Yeah, we got crows flying against the window, like his eyes roll up and become black, his stigmata start shooting blood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Wait. I mean, it's that's pretty uh, uh, interesting. I'm still not sold on Whoopi Goldberg as Mother Abigail. That but... was my question for you. Like, she has some old age makeup. Did that help you at all? My main issue with Whoopi Goldberg is she has, like, one delivery, and it's not the delivery I envisioned for Mother Abigail. Mm-hmm. And, like, I just keep going back to the old stand. I'm like, you need someone more frail. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like she has the gravitas. I'm kind of coming around on her once I saw the old age makeup. Because my problem was is Whoopi's too young. She's still too young. But then when I saw that they had really aged her up, and I was, and she has kind of a warmth and sort of a salt of the earth vibe to her that she ended up working for. Yeah, me. I don't know. When I saw her, um, I thought like she would probably fit better in johnny mnemonic than she fits in this okay <laughs> Fair enough. like put some cyberware on her and she could be like living up in the bridge yeah <laughs> you just want her to be uh gaiden again or what was her name yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. is that right gaiden gaiden, uh, gaiden. Uh, from yeah. yeah yeah i know what you're talking about from star trek um yep, yep. all right next character Nick. We got to look at him last episode, but now we flash back five months earlier to the beginning of the pandemic, and he is in a bar in Arkansas, and he actually bumps into this redneck dude, and he doesn't hear the guy like kind of confronting him because he's deaf. And as a result, the guy just like kicks his ass, knocks his eye out or whatever. And while he's knocked out, he ends up having a dream about Randall Flagg, who is trying to recruit him and promising him, if you come with me i will give you your eye back i will let you can hear you can speak all that kind of stuff all you have to do is blindly worship me and and nick is like nah dog i'm good he does the card thing where he like flips him off and pulls the card away to reveal the finger yeah (laughs) and then randall flag is like here you go and like shows him a picture of a card with like the hand over the eye and blood coming out yeah yeah what how are you feeling about randall flag in this i know we talked a little bit about him last time what we thought about him did your opinion change at all this time he's he's getting a little bit better Uh he still doesn't have the like the face i want from a randall flag right but um he's he's playing it well like the actor himself is like doing a good job yeah and so the physicality of him is just something i need to get over he also doesn't emote rage quite as much as like yeah as i would like so like when he flips him off like he was sort of sly instead of like how dare you you know yeah yeah, yeah. and like i was almost hoping for like a um almost foaming at the mouth like you won't get away with this sort of thing and right. instead it was just like eh, here yeah. you go yeah i mean he's definitely growing on me i'm still not totally in love yet but i liked him more this episode i think i'm like you like i kind of had an idea in my head of what i wanted and i'm kind of having to let go of what i wanted and and kind of embrace what it is that he's doing with the character i, I we're not gonna really know till we get some solid quality time with him and we see the dark side come out that's when I'm going to make my final decision. But mm-hmm. I felt better about him this time around. Well, there's some scenes, too, where, like, um, Nadine, is it Nadine? Mm-hmm. And him are, like, interacting. Yeah. And, like, he gets a little bit darker. Yeah, yeah. But it's still not quite the Not like, quite the level. there. Yeah. Yeah. So next we see Nick. He's dreaming again, this time of Mother Abigail, who tells him to come to her and find him so that he can be her voice. And then when he wakes up, there is a man there named Com Cullen. 
who is developmentally delayed and he wants to let you know that from the jump from a that head injury is so good like when he's like just explaining it over and over again yes he's been sit there by mother abigail all right what do you think uh we've already talked about mother abigail so let's just talk about tom cullen what did you think about tom cullen because i gotta tell you i was nervous when i i saw the person the actor played him i was like huh i wasn't sure you know huh. i kind of yeah but it's it's grown to the point where i'm like yeah that's cool i'm I'm good with that and like at first like he kind of looked like somebody out of um a mad max like a bad mad max side character mm-hmm. from like the 80s but like now with this like backstory and like finding out that he was an immigrant and like he always had a, a rough go and then like how he lost his eye that backstory makes it feel more like he fits into that character yeah yeah right yeah for sure when you first glimpse him you're like what is what come on Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. really and then like you get a good backstory and that like basically uh, erases all the rough edges yeah i think he is an interesting character um I I really I found myself liking him. I kind of identified with sort of his struggle. Not not personally. I'm not an immigrant, but like I thought, infusing him with that backstory of like being an immigrant really well, added to his character. And then when he he shows that like moment of great kindness for the yep. man that beat him up, like it endeared him to me. Yeah. So I I like Nick so far. I feel like I think he's doing a great job. I like where they've taken the character. I'm I'm for it. Now, the the character that I was, like I said, I was very nervous about was the Tom Cullen character, because I feel like they're, Stephen King has a few, un, like, unfortunate tropes that he returns to, and Tom Cullen, especially in the book, which, granted, 20 years old, you know, is not a really great character. Like, uh, a lot of people have problems with the way that he that Stephen King especially back then would write about disability and I also am concerned when you have like a, a you know a neurotypical actor playing someone with a mental disability so I was kind of like where are we going with this you know I was very concerned so uh, what did you what is your take on this character uh, so they did a really like they did a very good job um from like an ABA perspective uh-huh. uh one of the things that they teach folks that have disabilities or, or, or are cognizant enough to know that they have the disabilities is to memorize things yeah. that they can use as like their, their safety blanket when they meet someone mm-hmm. and like the repetition of like the statement that he's obviously been made to memorize yeah, to like help him fit in with people who aren't like him. Uh, actually like at first I was like, what? And then like he said it again and you're like, Oh an ABA specialist worked on this guy for a, a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got him to where he's at. And so then it's like, oh, well, they're kind of like going in with the training and like they're they're sort of like addressing it as though it would be a real life situation. And the guy when he gets nervous like just reverts back to his like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Maybe I didn't say this right. I'll say it one more time. It's a lot to remember. Case. So let me try again. <laughs> yeah, I was like I said very nervous and and I Obviously, I want to be circumspect, and if somebody tells me that I am wrong, I'm very open to hearing it because I do not have a disability, and I'm not, like, deep in that advocacy world. So with that caveat, I really loved him. I found him so charming and lovable, and, you He's know, better than the guy from Coach that played in the original. Yes, because they played him like a child instead of a grown-ass man with a disability. Yeah. I also think... 
Like, especially if you compare it to, like, oh, God, Dreamcatcher, when Donnie Wahlberg is playing someone with Down syndrome. Oh, my God. It's so bad. It's so bad. It's so cringeworthy. Whereas I felt, like, great warmth and affection instantly for Tom Cullen in this portrayal. So hopefully that stays true and maybe they expand on his character, give him some shit to do. But I, I loved him. I was really surprised by how much I really, really responded positively to him. So, fingers crossed he won't become super cringeworthy. <laughs> so, final character, Nadine. Now, Nadine, we get a mega flashback where we see her as a uh, as a kid when she's playing a game of with that planchette and it goes wrong and it starts scratching into the ground that Nadine will be my queen into the floor. Uh, this is like a total like horror. This is the most like horror movie moment we've had so far. Well, so with Nadine, like I, I don't know. She, she hasn't captured the sinister nature of Nadine yeah. as much as I would have hoped that she would. She still kind of like feels redeemable, right? In this, and for some, and maybe I'm just imagining things, but like I. F- feel like i remember her being more manipulative and like hinted towards evil until the end when she like regretted her choices yeah they're definitely playing it as someone who has literally since childhood had randall flag in her ear saying you're my queen you're my queen you're my queen and like what does that do to a person yeah but i don't at the end of this section to get ahead of ourselves basically he's like i need you to kill mother abigail and her five puppets and you need to go set off harold and we'll call it a day on them so yeah i don't know i don't know about nadine i i mean we could go into all the beats of this but i think we got a sequence of events with her but i didn't feel like like you said like i got a lot of pathos yeah yeah i'm not sure on her yet as to whether i'm I'm in or out. Mm-hmm. We'll have to see like how she performs with Harold. Yes. Uh, down the road. Cause yes. everybody knows that's coming. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it ended with her writing his name. Right. So there's, yep. so that's so there's, coming. There's no ambiguousness here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, the final scene is Harold disposing of a, of the man's body from the road. And he ominously warns that he's just the first of many fresh bodies to come. Yeah. And it's like the guy that's with him is like, uh, Harold's a weird guy. Like he's probably just being weird. Right. <laughs> but like Harold's like, I'm looking over this. Yeah. And like there's a scene where those two are interacting too where like the other guy is like, I just met the most beautiful girl in the world. And like I don't think I'd have stand a chance unless I was the last man on earth. And like now I'm pretty close. And Harold is just like <laughs> mean to him. He's like <laughs> I mean, still out of your league. Yeah, but I kind of love this interaction for him. And you could like Harold's one of those characters where you could see if he could just get out of his own way, he could he could turn shit around for himself. But that's the thing. So like at first it felt like those two interacting was that um, he had like taken Harold under his wing. Yeah. And that like Harold just appreciates someone being nice to him. Mm -hmm. And like now the tables have turned and like. He's under Harold's wing. I do feel like he's kind of under his wing and like, but he's just sort of embracing his dark side right now. Like he's full Anakin in it. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, that guy's clearance rack of Obi-Wan, but you know what I'm saying? Like, that is kind of the journey he's on. He's trying to decide, like, which way am I going to go? And he's, like, embracing his anger and his bitterness and all that stuff. Hmm. Mm. All right. All right. Overall, what'd you think of this episode? I mean, it's okay. I I'm not, like, checking out. Obviously, I can't because I'm <laughs> doing this for the podcast. Oh. But... I mean, but if we like... think it's bad and we hate it, we'll stop. But Well, no, it's it's I don't hate it. It's just that... This definitely occupies a larger chunk of my <laughs> my time watching than I would normally uh, expend on a show that meets expectations but doesn't exceed, exceed expectations. Yeah. 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 This For me, this episode, none of them has lived up to the first episode for me so far. I still hold out hope that we're going to – it's not bad by any stretch. I'm entertained while I'm watching it. But that first episode I thought was so good that I'm just kind of like mm, – this is good you know i i'm i'm it's interesting it's like i feel like harold has become the main character as opposed to everyone else so but uh well i i think if um if nothing else like we always like to see stephen king properties propagated in a nicer format Mm-hmm. And even if it's not 100% like what the fans want or what we wanted out of it, the fact that we're getting a nicer version of it is as good as it gets. Yeah, no, you're totally right. You're absolutely right. And I wanted to succeed because the more successful these things are, the more we'll get. And I would love, we've talked about this, like I'm ready for the the Stephen King miniseries renaissance. There's so oh. many of his good books that are so good, but really need to be in longer formats like this. And the problem is I feel like they pick the one that's like the most unadaptable, <laughs> you know, well, with, with Stephen King, like he enjoys um, a peak and value of Renaissance for television. Yeah. So like if it doesn't come this this time around the, the tower, <laughs> it'll come next time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. Just hope we're still I know alive that, when they start mining it for the 27th time. Well, I know that Mike Flanagan, Flanagan has expressed a desire to do the Dark Tower, so I keep holding out hope that that will happen at some point. Like, somebody's going to throw some freaking money at him and make it happen. By the way, I think we have a visitor. Hello. Hello. Oh. Hi. <laughs> we're just wrapping up our review of The Stand. Uh, oh. Are you watching it? No, I haven't. I haven't started it yet. Okay. Fair enough. Well, for those of you listeners who maybe have not dabbled in the other podcasts on the Zombie Girls Network, I'd like to introduce you to Mars. Hello. Hello. Mars is my co-host on the Stream Queens, where we review horror films that you can stream on the internet, which I'll say again in like two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So Mars is going to be sticking around for our extended episode, and we're going to put old DJ to the test with some some trivia. (laughs) I'm a horrible trivia player, so this will be... Well, this is why I brought in Mars. She's going to be your assist. You guys together. <laughs> you a horrible a trivia player too, Mars? No, Mars just won trivia. Two wrongs I'm... make a wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm awful at trivia. It's so weird because I feel like I know all sorts of random weird things. And then you get to an actual structured trivia game, and I know nothing. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to find out in the extended episode. All right. Well, let's wrap up this regular episode for now. For those of you at home that are enjoying the show, leave us a review on iTunes, email us, all that good stuff. If you want some more DJ in your life, where else can they find you on the internet, buddy? 
I mean, you can swing over to deadlander.com and listen to the Deadlander podcast. You can also swing over to YouTube and mine through my 15 years of YouTube videos that are still up and have millions of views. You can watch me teach rappers how to rap and you can teach, uh, watch me teach people how to use cameras, all kinds of fun stuff. Um, and then click on the ad revenue, please. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Rachel? Where can they find you? Well, you can find me on the Zombie Girls podcast where we review horror films from a feminist perspective. You can find me on the Stream Queens with Mars where we review horror films you can stream on the internet. I think our next episode coming out is The Beach House. Oh, it's a good one. It's a good The, the movie. I can't. I'm not going to self-judge our episode. I but mean, the movie's good. <laughs> Uh, and you can find me on the More Deadly podcast where we review horror films directed by women. I think in that case, I can't remember what the next episode is. So you'll be surprised with me. Yay. All right, DJ, take us out. Thanks for listening to another exciting episode of the Cast of Ka, where if you weren't squealing like a pig, you will be soon. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> I'm going to assume you mean on the fire and just keep it pushing. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye.